The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Acts 16, Paul meets a Philippine. Hey, that rhymes. Acts 16, Paul meets a Philippine. Some of you have been following. I've got all the way up to Acts 14. We forgot about 15 and 16, but some of you that... I changed some of the wording to that, but that makes sense. We are now in Acts 16, because Acts 16 is all about, that's where we are, that's where we left off. The whole chapter is about Paul doing ministry in his second journey in Philippi, and he meets some Philippines along the way. Acts 16, Paul meets the Philippines. He first met a, a, a faithful woman who became a woman of God. That was the first part. So Paul and his three buddies, his partners in ministry, Silas, Newly acquired Luke the doctor. Newly acquired young, probably teenage Timothy from that city where Paul got beat up and pummeled almost to the point of death and was dragged out of the city. And his mother and grandmother Lois and Eunice probably saw Paul get dragged out of the city. That was probably the last they saw of Paul before he came back the second time. They thought he was dead. Then Paul comes back to town. They thought he was dead and they saw him get beat up for being a Christian. Then Paul says to mother and grandmother, can I take your teenage son on my missionary journey with me? He didn't promise that he, Timothy wouldn't get beat up. Anyway, just keep that in your mind. Paul takes Timothy with him, so now they embark on their second missionary trip. This is about 50 A.D. now, 20 years after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. 15 years that Paul's been a believer now. Second missionary journey. This is going to take a little longer than the first one. Almost 3,000 miles he's going to travel. He's on the front end of it. He entered into Europe, the area of Macedonia. We call it Europe. It wasn't Europe back then. It was all part of the Roman Empire. Macedonia. God called Paul to go to Macedonia, which is north of Greece, which is all north of Africa, just on your map there. Macedonia. Historically insignificant. Macedonia. Historically very significant with the rise of Philip Macedon and Alexander the Great. Philip of Macedon. Philippi, Philip of Macedon. Philippi, Philip of Macedon. Hey, there's a connection. That's what leaders did. They were so arrogant and in love with themselves, they'd conquer a city and name it after themselves. Philippi, Philip. And that's where Paul is right now in this. And then it was uh, the Greeks, it was a Greek kingdom, and then the Romans came in 168 B.C. or thereabouts when the Roman Empire began to dominate that part of the world, and they conquered and took over Macedonia including significant cities there like Philippi. And they colonized it and became a Roman colony. A Roman colony. It became an extension of the Roman government, even though it wasn't in Italy. But it had all rights and privileges of a Roman city. It was a Roman colony. Not all cities were Roman colonies, but it was. So Philippi was well-known, strategically located, uh, prestigious, and it began probably as a city under the Roman Empire because it was a colony with a bunch of Roman soldiers and former Roman soldiers. So it would be an outpost for the Roman kingdom, for the Roman Empire. So it is filled with Gentiles. It is filled with mostly Romans who speak Latin, but they also speak Greek. There are very few Jews, hardly any at all. We don't meet a Jewish man in the city of Philippi in this entire text. So that's Philippi, a very significant city, Roman colony, with all rights and privileges of how a Roman city should be run. And when you think historically about Rome, its prestige, its significance, and their accomplishments, what do we typically think of? We think of Roman law. Yeah, you were going to say law. Roman, that's what they were known for. The greatest of lawyers in history, Cicero, at least if you don't know about Cicero, at least you probably know his name. He lived before the time of Christ. He wrote extensively. He was an amazing poet as well, but a trained lawyer, a trained politician. Whoa, those kind of always go together for some reason. A trained lawyer and a trained politician and a poet and a philosopher, and, oh, and an expert orator. Those always go together. Lawyer, politician, orator. 
And that's what Cicero was. By the way, Cicero was not fond of Jews. No, let me put it another way. Cicero uh, despised Jews. Cicero didn't like the Jews. Cicero mocked Jews in his writings. They were of a subclass of human being. But that wasn't just Cicero's opinion. That was the general universally accepted opinion among the Romans. The Romans were proud of their nationality, their ethnicity, their race. They were a superior race. The Romans. Everybody else down here. That's going to be important in the background here in the city of Philippi. But they were known for law. They actually had law written down and codified, unlike many people. It was procedural. There was a process. It was supposed to be very just. If you were a Roman citizen, despite where you were on the hierarchy and the strata of society, if you were a Roman citizen, you had all rights and privileges to the Roman court of law. Due process. An audience before a judge or judges. An opportunity to give testimony and provide witness and evidence. A hearing. An objective assessment. And then a legitimate judgment and rendering. And then justified consequences of the rendering. That's what Rome was known for. That's what Philippi should have been known for. Well, we're going to see that's not the case. Anyway, so Paul comes into town. He starts preaching the gospel. There aren't many Jews around. He meets a group of ladies, about 10 of them. They're praying together, or at least Paul was on his way to prayer when he intersected with these ladies. He preached the gospel. Uh, There was a woman there. Her name was Lydia. She was familiar with Yahweh. She heard the truth about Jesus. God softened her heart. She heard the truth of divine revelation about Jesus, and God used that to convict her of her sin. He also opened her heart, meaning he stripped away satanic blindness from her spiritual eyes. He stripped away sinful blindness that had been blinding her, and she believed and she embraced the truth of Jesus Christ, and she was born again and saved and became a Christian on the spot. And God changed her life. God filled her with the Spirit. She was a new woman. She was a fulfilled woman of God. And then she extended great hospitality as soon as she got saved to Paul the Apostle and his three companions. And she was a woman of means, of wealth, and she opened up her home and demanded that Paul and his partners stay. So they do. So they're staying at Lydia's place. That's where we are. That's the big picture of Acts 16. They're in Philippi. They found a place of operations. That's Lydia's probably beautiful, larger home. And they're allowed to come and go from Lydia's place to do missions for Jesus. They were, we don't know how long they were in Philippi here. The passage begins many days. And then a little later it says many days. And then at the very end it says they got, they had to leave quickly. So maybe several weeks, maybe a few months, maybe at most, maybe two months. How, how, and then we find out Paul shortly thereafter writes a letter called the Philipp, to the Philippians, to the Philippian church. So if Paul was only there for a month or so, how in the world Did he successfully plant a thriving, growing, organized church at Philippi in just a few weeks? Because we know he got booted out of town with Silas. Well, the likelihood is, is that when Paul and Silas get booted out of town here in our story, it just says Paul and Silas got booted out of town. It doesn't say anything about Luke and Timothy. Luke and Timothy remained behind. And Luke and Timothy probably continued the work to build church we're going to see that in our story as well so after dealing so they're coming and going and they're evangelizing and they're winning disciples and they got a little uh startup little house church and verse 16 let's go ahead and look at it 16 to 24 is where we're at today continuing from our sermon last week that i called paul's journey part three satanic opposition And so we're going to pick up on the second part of satanic opposition. When you do ministry for Jesus, when you try to obey God, when you try to do biblical ministry, you will face satanic opposition, without a doubt. That was the big reminder from last week. By the way, did anybody here pray at all this week against Satan? Oh, good to see this. You know I did? Because I gave you a homework assignment. Pray every day in light of the Lord's Prayer against Satan. Protection from Satan. Jesus said to do that. Give us this day our daily bread. So we need to pray every day. What else do we pray for, Jesus? Forgiveness for others. 
forgiveness towards others and forgiveness for ourselves. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So I said, we need to pray every day, protection from Satan. So I know I, I consciously did that every day this week. And thinking, hoping that you would do the same. Man, I bet Satan got a black eye from Northern California. Boom, what is up with that? Good. We covered the first point. Let's go ahead and look at it in my fourfold outline there, the deception. I'm going to start reading in verse 16 up to 18. <coughs> so Paul goes from meeting, spending time with a godly woman to an evil, wicked, demon-possessed woman. Verse 16. And it happened that as we, says Luke, the missionary team, he doesn't say we throughout this whole passage. He transitions to them, Paul and Silas, midway through. Happened as we were going to the place of prayer where we met Lydia, a slave girl, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, having the spirit of a, of a python, python, snake, serpent, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters, plural, much profit by fortune-telling, predicting the future, palm reader, whatever she was. Verse 17. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation. So they meet this young, it's a young girl. She's a slave. She's owned by somebody else. She's involved in the slave trade. You know, we still have that today, 2,000 years later, the slave trade. Or evil, wicked, money-grubbing owners, slaves, men, whoever they are. Take young girls. Manipulate them for money, for profit. And they could care less about the well-being of that young girl. And that's what's going on here. It's wicked. It's a wicked, evil practice. But it's being tolerated by the governor of this city, which tells you how wicked and evil and corrupt the leaders are of this city. They would tolerate this openly practiced system of exploiting this young girl. That's what's going on. And this girl meets Paul's team, and then she starts following them. And then she gets behind them, and she starts shouting out the top of her lungs, these men are bondservants of the Most High God. She, in other words, the word there used for crying in verse 17 is she's screaming. She is uh, shrieking is the way it's translated. If you look up that word, crying in verse 17, kradzo is the Greek word. Every time it is used, it is used with respect to very strong emotion. It's always a, a, a very loud, shrieking, piercing noise. Sometimes it's, can't even understand what they're saying. Most of the times it is articulated and you can understand it. Uh, many times it's used with respect to demons who are inside of human beings. Like when Jesus confronts a demon-possessed human being and the demons shrieked, cried out as they were cast out. It's just this piercing, shrieking, screaming at the top of the lungs. It refers to insane people what it's used as well in the New Testament. So just about every single time. It's just this shrieking, piercing, uncontrollable, shouting. Sometimes in the face of death. Jesus, when it said that he shouted out at his death and he breathed his last, it's the same word. In the face of a cruel death. So that's, that's what this lady is doing. She, so this is this young girl. She's a slave. She's following Paul around, and she's screaming at the top of her lungs following this team of missionaries. And she was doing this, beginning of verse 18, for many days, day after day after day after day. She's not involved in dialogue. She's not interested in the conversation. She's not interested in them getting to know her. She's doing one thing over and 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 over, day after day after day after day, shrieking at the top of their lungs. You ask, how is that even possible that somebody would do that without losing their voice? Well, there's a reason, because there's a demon inside of her. It's not the woman speaking. It is a demon screaming out of her. As a matter of fact, the Greek word, or the word there in verse 17, uh, 
or no, when it says a spirit of divin, divination, python, that's, that word is also used for, get this, ventriloquism. A word other than your own, or a voice other than your own. She had a spirit of the snake, she had a spirit of the serpent, or she had a spirit of a ventriloquist. Who's that ventriloquist? That is the demon inside of her that is screaming, shrieking, and basically creating a public spectacle day after day after day after day. As Paul's trying to get some ministry, personal, intimate gospel ministry done. And there's this one, this crazed, demon-possessed girl behind, shrieking at the top of her voice, distracting, messing up everything. And then she says, these men are bondservants. These men are slaves of the Most High God. That sounds accurate. They're slaves of the Most High God. The problem is what she said, the Most High God. The Most High God, that is not really a biblical, personal reference of Jesus or Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. As a matter of fact, that phrase, the Most High God, that was typically what the demons would say to Jesus when they were inside of people, when he confronted demon-possessed people and he'd go up to them. Or sometimes demon-possessed people would see Jesus from a distance. Get this, demon-possessed people would see Jesus from a distance. They wouldn't run away. They would dash right towards Jesus. That's interesting. And that happens in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew chapter 8. And they, they run to Jesus, and all of a sudden that shrieking, ventriloquistic demon voice comes out of the human being, and they always say the same thing. They would say, Son of God, Jesus, but they always say, uh, many times say, Son of the Most High God. That, that is a pagan ascription of the Creator. Then say Yahweh. They're slaves of Jesus. That name is offensive. Why would they use that name? The narrow way, the only way. By the way, it says uh, the Most High God who are proclaiming, it's in the Greek text, it's a way of salvation, not the way of salvation. Jesus said he was the way to salvation, the only way. That's an offensive message. His name is offensive. No wonder this demon doesn't want to publicize the truth about Christianity or Jesus. The Most High God, one of the many gods. So Paul doesn't accept that, that acclamation. He's not happy. He's not proud of the unsolicited marketing and advertisement he's getting. He doesn't accept it. So let's pick up verse 18, point number two, after the deception is the discernment. So even though it sounds on the surface to be true what she said, they are slaves of the Most High God. Yeah, God is the Most High God. They are servants of him. That's true. They are talking about a way of salvation. Yes, that's true. Paul doesn't affirm this, and for good reason. As a matter of fact, he does just the opposite, and it's kind of shocking or striking what he does. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, you're, thanks for helping us out. Yeah, you know everybody in town. Thanks for telling them we are presenting the way of salvation. That's awesome, lady. Can you scream a little louder? Hey, why don't you come in front of us and do it? No. He has discernment that the average person doesn't. As a matter of fact, uh, that's the point. How did Paul know that what she was doing was wrong, illegitimate, and a deception and a ploy of Satan? Because Satan only operates one of two ways with respect to the truth. So Jesus, uh, Satan usually accommodates the, tr- the truth. He tries to. Satan has a big tent. And one of his preferences is, is to accommodate the truth. Oh, okay, you're Methodist? Okay, come on in. Yeah, and you're oh, Lutherans and Baptists? Yeah, come on in. Oh, the Mormons? Yeah, yeah, we're all one big, big happy family. Oh, occultist and Hindu? Yeah, you can fit under here too. Big tent. That's how Satan works. So it's accommodate. But when these narrow-minded truth-tellers come along like Jesus, Paul, and Peter, who will have none of it, then Satan gives up the, the accommodation game. Oh, okay. So you're not going to, Satan says, so you're not going to play by my rules. And then he quickly does a 180 and he turns on you. He turns on the truth. He turns on the Christian. Like that. I'm not going to accommodate you anymore. So Satan goes from accommodation to attack. You will either accommodate and you play by his rules, compromise your truths, lower your standard, set aside your convictions, close the Bible. Or if you stick to it, then he will attack. He will go on the attack in an unrelenting manner. That's exactly what he does here. Accommodation doesn't work. So strategy number two, attack, attack, attack. Shut these Christians down. Oh, that's what's going on in our world today. That's going on in 
in America and many other places. And it will get worse if we learn anything from the Bible and history. They don't relent. Satan doesn't just back off, go to sleep, and wave the white flag. He just intensifies. So that's what's going on here. So Paul has great discernment, and he discerns the truth. And he realized this woman, she is not of God. She's not sincere. She's not legit. As a matter of fact, she's not a she. It is a demon. The demon is the one that's saying these things. He, he could discern that just by the, the nature of the voice and the message being spewed. And so Paul has the, the gift of discerning of spirits. By the way, some people think they have the gift of discernment. Uh, the only gift of discernment referred to in the Bible, we saw this in 1 Corinthians 12, was the gift in 1 Corinthians 12, four, or 12 and 14. Discerning of spirits is what it is. It's not the gift of discernment. It's the gift of discerning of spirits. And it's always used side by side in parallel and in conjunction with the gift of prophecy. So the gift of discerning spirits was the ability to discern whether a prophet was of God or not, whether a a spirit was a familiar spirit or the Holy Spirit that was speaking, giving so-called divine revelation. Paul, as an apostle, had this gift, the gift of discerning of spirits. So he had the ability to get direct revelation from Jesus, but he was also able to assess and listen to a prophet or someone who claimed to be speaking as an oracle of God, and he could tell whether they were false or not. And so that's the gift that Paul is using here. We don't all have this gift. As a matter of fact, I dare say this gift doesn't exist today because it was an apostolic gift to discern so-called prophecy, and that's what he does. This woman, he's discerning the spirit that is in her. It is not of God. Now, Christians are discerning. Some are better than others, but every Christian should be discerning. That's like every Christian should be praying. That's what Scripture says. And Scripture also says every Christian should be discerning. So it's not a gift. It's a Christian discipline and virtue that we need to grow in. And it has to do with the discipline of the mind and meditating on truth. Think on true things, Philippians 4, 8, 9. And growing in our ability to discern truth and error. So every Christian is obligated to do that. This is different. This is the gift of discerning of spirits. And so Paul is greatly annoyed after several days and for right reason because he's annoyed at the money these men are making off this poor young woman who is made in the image of God, who is precious before God, who is a candidate for salvation, who is vulnerable. Where in the world are her parents? She needs a man or somebody or a provider or somebody to care for her and love her. So he's probably annoyed with these guys who are just money grubbers. He's also annoyed with the fact that his ministry was being circumvented and overshadowed by the disturbance she was creating. This was Satan's strategy. She is creating a public spectacle. She is creating an annoying disturbance publicly, on purpose. It it is masterful. It is strategic on the part of Satan because in the Roman Empire, in a Roman colony, the Romans were very tolerant. They would allow all kinds of religions, worldviews and beliefs. Just as long as you did a couple things. You still got to, you know, give Caesar his due. And if you got a, you got a false belief or religion, if you got another sect or religion or whatever, we got to know about it. They knew about Judaism. Judaism was tolerated under the Roman Empire with conditions. Hey, you Jews, you can exist in Philippi. You can exist in the Roman Empire. That's legit. The Pox Romana. But you cannot, Jew, proselytize Roman citizens. So the two main rules. The other one was probably the biggest beef that the Romans had with respect to civil matters they required was to keep the peace. Do not create a disturbance. That was a crime. And every time they saw it, they would crush it. That'd be the major offense. That's the one thing you don't do in a Roman city, in a Roman colony, is disturb the peace. And here is exactly, that is what this woman is doing. Paul isn't doing it. Paul always, he was a very conscientious, good citizen everywhere he went. He would learn about the city. He would abide by the rules. He was sensitive to the customs. He understood the faux pas. That's 1 Corinthians 9. That's what he said. To the Jew, I am a Jew. To the, and that could be extended. To the Gentile, I'm a Gentile. To the Greek, I'm a Greek. To the Roman citizen, I'm a Roman citizen. Wherever I go, 
as long as it's not sin, I want to abide by and meet the people in the culture where they are at. And that's so he was a good citizen. We know that. He himself is a Roman citizen. Paul knows what the rules are in the Roman government. Paul knows what the, the rules are to abide by, to be a good, acceptable, law-abiding, civil uh, person living in the midst of this city of Philippi. He knew the rules. Don't create a disturbance. And don't bring some unregistered, unknown religion. As far as these people know, he was Jewish. Jewish, it was okay. Judaism. But it wasn't really Judaism. It was Christianity. But it was connected to Judaism. Anyway, so that's just some of the background there. Paul's, in terms of his discernment and what's going on, and God uses his uh, human abilities and human giftedness, but also coupled with this supernatural ability to discern evil spirits. He did. He was annoyed. So he turned and he said to the spirit, not to the young girl. He said to the spirit, to the demon inside of her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and immediately, boom, the demon left. And that's how Jesus, 100% of the time, dealt with demon-possessed people. Exorcisms. Jesus's exorcisms always lasted this long. Boom. And every time you see a demon-possessed person go up to Jesus and say, Oh, son of David, Jesus, son of the most high God. What do you have to do with me? What do we have to do with you? And you know, he usually said, shut up. Really? Okay, he said, silence. But he said it probably in Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek. He never accepted even true statements from demons. Silence. Shut up. Be gone. And boom. And because Paul was an apostle, a representative of Jesus Christ, he had this unique and rare ability. This kind of ability doesn't exist today, I don't think. This was an apostolic gift. I've never been able to or never tried to exercise a demon out of anybody. And today in exorcism, usually you hold a candle and a crucifix and you pray for three days and there's sweat and blood all over the place and crosses are spinning upside down on the wall and windows are shattering and the building is shaking. That is not in the Bible. All the exorc- There are a few exorcisms. Paul only did two or three. Here's one of them. They're all in the book of Acts, actually. They're all the same. And it's by an apostle. We don't have lay people and regular old Christians like you and me going around doing exorcisms. We're not called to. Well, what do we do with demon-possessed people? Run! Or pray. Give them the gospel. That's how you exorcise a demon that is inside of somebody. You give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Really? It will, because it's supernatural. It's the most powerful thing in the world. It will penetrate into their mind, into their conscience, into their soul, and God can enable them to believe. And if they get if they get saved, born again, boom, those demons will flee on the spot. And they will no longer be possessed by demons. They will be possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. That's how we do exorcisms today, by evangelizing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, where are all the demon-possessed people today? I don't see them running around like this. Well, they're out there. We talked about that last week. Today, uh, but it just, it looks different. Sometimes it's, um, we've turned it all, all the spiritual realities into medical terminology or psychological terminology. They have this disease and that disease and this disease and that disease. They need this medication. They need to be numbed when in reality, many of those people could be tormented or possessed by demons. Really? That's what the Bible says. So in that minute, uh, the demon leaves because of Paul's supernaturally apostolic given discernment. Discernment. And notice Jesus Christ is the only solution. Uh, He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, the name you failed to mention, the name you didn't want to mention, that other name that you used, that generic kind of pagan name in reference of God, the creator, the, the most high God. It's actually specifically Jesus, the name. God saves. That's what the name means. God is Savior, that name, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the anointed one. That's Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one, the Messiah of the Old Testament. God in the flesh lived sinless, died on the cross, absorbed the wrath of God, raised again from the dead, ascended back into heaven, reigns on high as King of kings and Lord of lords and judge of every soul. That Jesus Christ, who has power over all demons, that name is loaded. In the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her and that demon obeyed. You know, demons believe in Jesus. Demons believe in the Bible. Demons believe the, they use the Bible. Demons quote the Bible. 
Demons believe in God and they are evil to the core. That's why they are dangerous. That's why they're scary. Amazing discernment. Going to the distraction. The distraction from what? Well, the distraction from the ministry Paul is trying to do. Number three. After the deception, his amazing discernment, the distraction to the ministry, and also the distraction of a false accusation levied against Paul and Silas. Now, the the ministry team breaks up now. All of a sudden, kind of Luke and Timothy exit out of the scene. Maybe in the providence of God. He takes the Gentile guys, Timothy and Luke K guys, out of here. Let's just leave the Jewish guys here, Paul and Silas. And there's a distraction from ministry, and there's a distraction regarding the truth. But when her masters, the slave girl's masters, saw that their hope of profit was gone, there's a lot of money in religion. That's been true since the Old Testament, Balaam. And it's still true today. There's a lot of money in false religion. Many times it looks Christian. Their profit was gone. That's all they cared about, money. Their God was money. They didn't care about this poor girl. They weren't rejoicing that she was freed of a demon. They seized Paul and Silas. They arrested Paul and Silas. They grabbed Paul and Silas. I was thinking about getting like a cooperative six-year-old to come up here on the stage so I could demonstrate. To seize, to grab instantaneously without thought, without a conversation, without any judicial procedure. And it says they dragged Paul and Silas. Can you imagine? Get that in your mind. Okay, these are grown men. They are civil men. They are subservient men. They are compliant citizens. I guarantee that if the authorities told Paul and Silas, can you gentlemen follow me? We're going to go to the Agora to meet the governor. Paul and Silas would have said, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They're never given the chance. It says these guys attack them. They are so filled with rage and anger because they're losing their money that they just grab Paul and Silas and literally it says they drag them. You can imagine, just tackle them, grab them by the ankle and they just drag them across the city. They drag them into the stone floor of the public agora, uh, the open square where they had the marketplace was and people did business and people are coming and going. It's broad daylight and also they did... Uh, they had their, they judged cases there, civilly, publicly. And so they just dragged Paul and Silas. Seized them, grabbed them, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. So the authorities were there meeting. The authorities are like governors. Provincial, big shot, compromised, bigger than their britches, magistrates who answered only to Rome. But Rome was very far away, so they could get away with a lot. They should be overseeing justice. They're not. They should be managing truth. They're not. Look what they're doing. So they're, they're, the court session is open. The Bema judgment is there. They're sitting up on the esteemed platform in the middle of the square, and all the Lilliputians are watching in awe in their lovely red velvet robes these governors of Philippi. And they just drag them in, plop them on the ground, and immediate accusation. These men are throwing our city into confusion. Being just... So here's the allegation. This is the distraction. It's a distraction from the truth. What was the truth? Well, Paul cast out a demon from a woman. He saved a woman. He chased a demon away. It wouldn't bother anybody else. He liberated this girl, and he was giving the truth that could provide forgiveness and save the soul. It was all good. Good, good, good. What was Paul's crime? Bringing good news. Good news for who? Good news for everybody. He was doing nothing but good. That's what he was doing. That isn't what they say. No, he was doing bad. Bad, bad, bad. Doesn't mention any of that. That what Paul and Silas actually did. And they, they just create falsehood. These men are throwing our city into confusion. There it is. These men are creating a public spectacle. And they're disrupting the entire city. That was a lie. See, that was the the woman. The demon-possessed woman was the one doing that. As she's screaming at the top of her lungs, following them wherever they went for days and days and days. And then he they pin it on Paul. The entire city knew 
who Paul, at least what Paul looked like and that he was walking around. But all they know is this shrieking, screaming lady with a very deep, scary, low voice. So that's a false accusation. And they know that these provincial, low-life, compromised, localized leaders, they can keep their authority, they can keep their power if they just manage two things. Boy, don't let any disruption happen in the city. You got that? That's what Caesar said over yonder. All right, no disruption. That's why they brought it up. When they brought them to the chief magistrate, these men are throwing our city into confusion. That is a lie. Then they throw this in. Being Jews, by the way, that's what Jews do. Jews are insurrectionists. They have a history for it. That is just absolutely prejudicial. I gave you the background on that. The Romans prided themselves like the Nazis being white and delightsome and of the pure race. The Romans were the same. So they see Paul not as a Christian. They see Paul not as a fellow Roman citizen. They see Paul as a Jew. And that's a half-truth, so that is a lie. That's why in a courtroom you say, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is not the whole truth. This is a lie. And then the third part of the false allegation, it's a distraction from the truth. And they are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. And you would think that a good judge would have some follow-up questions. Oh, what are these illegitimate customs that they are proclaiming? Didn't do that. What are these illegitimate, unlawful observances they are requiring of you? Didn't do that. And also a good judge would cross-examine and also talk to the witnesses. So, Paul, can you explain yourself? Paul, would you like to address these? Didn't do that. This is just rash, a lack of justice. Being Romans. And they juxtapose they're Jews, we're Romans, so he appeals to the uh, basal nature of prejudicial identity. They're Jews, we're Romans. Boom! Case closed. Guilty. That's what they did. People still do that today. They make ethnicity your identity. They have people coalesce around that. It's very superficial. It is very self-centered. It is very fleshly. It's very ungodly. It's wicked to the core, actually. Every race has done it. There are white supremacists, black supremacists, Hispanic supremacists, Chinese supremacists, Indian supremacists. You name it, they've done it. They are doing it. Contrary to the Bible, God made every human being in his image. Every human being. And every human being literally came from Adam and Eve. Every, I don't, whatever the color of your skin is today, you came from your first parents, Adam and Eve. So this is just totally contrary to the Bible, this prejudicial idea. And when someone embraces the gospel, they are liberated from this very superficial prejudicial identity. You're not a black person, a white person, a yellow person, a brown. You are a, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. Whether Jew or Greek, Slave or free, male or female, doesn't matter. You're one in Christ. That is the message of Christianity, true biblical Christianity. So when people out there in the world misdiagnose Christianity with their bumper sticker monikers that defy truth, oh, Christians, they're bigoted, they're racist, they're xenophobic, they're ethnocentric, they're homophobic, they're... And on and on it goes, it's a lie. That's not biblical Christianity. That wasn't Jesus, that wasn't Paul. It's a false caricature, and that's what they're doing here. Well, it worked because they got the, the Roman crowd all riled. Keep in mind, this city was populated with Roman soldiers and retired Roman soldiers. Man, they loved their country. Many died for their country, and the ones living and remaining suffered for their country. We are Romans. So the crowd gets riled up. Yeah, that's right. Rome's number one. So the crowd gets all riled up. Let's go to point number four, the damage that is done from these lies. Satan creates havoc and damage just about everywhere he goes. We've got to fight it with the truth, with the truth, with the truth, from the Bible. 
What's the damage? Well, the crowd rose up. The Roman crowd rose up together against. So here comes the mob. No doubt they're probably, they're about to just swallow in on Paul and Silas. But before they do, the governors intervene. The governors intervene. Not to give justice, but to do damage. So the crowd rises up together against them. And they were probably screaming out loud. And the chief magistrates, the governors there, tore their robes off of them. So they go up to Paul and Silas, and they just rip their clothes off. That was customary when you were going to beat somebody either to death or just beat him to a pulp and throw him in jail. That was reserved for the worst of criminals. Oh, by the way, after a fair trial, going through due process and assessing the facts, and a fair and objective judgment was rent, rendered with a commensurate penalty. That's the way it should have gone. That was Roman justice. So we were told. They just ripped their clothes off. They don't even render a verdict. Ripped their clothes off. Proceeded to order the assistants there to beat them with rods. It's like getting beat with a cane. And this was public, by the way. They are humiliated, stripped almost naked, tied to a rack, and then they just start whacking away on their backs, and they became as bloody to a pulp. Many people would die from this, this beating, the severity of it. There was no limit to it. Well, how many times did they beat him? It was up to the capricious leader at the time who just said, well, that's enough, stop. Unlike the Old Testament that said if somebody who deserved it got a, a beating or was whipped, it was 39. I mean, the Jews put a limit on it to preserve life and justice. So they, they beat them to a bloody pulp. It says they tore their robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Verse 23, when they had struck them with many blows, and that means a lot of blows. Then they threw them into prison. The Old Testament had no prison. God's people didn't have a prison. Pagans had prisons. The Rome, Rome had public prisons. They had threefold prisons. The outer prison, the inner normal prison with bars, and then the, the inner sanctum prison, which was the dungeon, uh, isolation from everybody, the poorest of conditions that you can possibly imagine. That's where they were going to throw Paul and Silas. In the worst of the worst for the most heinous of criminals, the inner dungeon of the prison in Rome. Struck them, beat them with many uh, times, threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And really, that's a formal order. Okay, you guard these men. They are dangerous. They're a menace to society. They're going into the worst uh, place in our prison system. There's, and they're going to be there indefinitely. And you, jailer, you are responsible for them. Secure them with your life. The jailer let them go. If they got away and escaped, off with his head. So the jailer takes his job seriously, guarding them securely, verse 24. And he, the jailer, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison. Threw them. And then he fastened their feet to the stocks. Usually hands and feet to the wooden stocks, to the ground. After they've been beaten to a pulp. So instead of a a due process of a trial that was just, fair, and right, centered on the objective facts of the case with all appropriate witnesses getting a hearing. Instead, that was all bypassed and undermined. And in the verbs used here to describe them, they were dragged, they tore their robes, they were beaten, they were thrown, they were fastened, and then they slammed the door shut. No justice at all. Severe damage. The truth has been subverted. The truth has been diluted, hidden, out of sight. But you know what's good? Do you know that the truth always surfaces? It does. The truth always has a way of rising to the surface. Maybe not everybody always discerns it or sees it, but it does. So it's kind of gloomy right now, but this story gets better. God intervenes in his perfect timing, and we're going to see truth rise to the surface. So with this story in mind, which is a true historical event, the greatest Christians uh, that the church has ever been graced and blessed with, as they go out in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, will be subject to satanic opposition that usually we cannot see, and also human opposition to the gospel, which many times we can see and even feel in the worst of ways. And through it all, we have to be like Job, who despite the persecution, never sinned with his lips, 
And like Paul and Silas, we're going to see they respond in an, an amazing, supernatural, godly way, the same way that we can with the, the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit that is in every single one of us. All for God's glory. Well, right now we have the privilege uh, to transition to communion. And if you are a Christian here today, you believe that Jesus is the Savior, the only Savior, the only one who provides a way to God up in heaven, salvation. If you believe that Jesus is the God-man, that he came to this earth, never sinned, actually deity in the flesh, Jesus is an eternal being. He was never created. He's always existed with the Father and the Spirit. Came down to live on this earth for 33 years for the very purpose of going to a, a cross to be crucified, to die as a criminal, the penalty of death on behalf of sinners. And as he was on the cross, he was actually punished by God the Father, who in heaven was pouring out spiritually, supernaturally, his wrath on Jesus on behalf of sinners. And Jesus was dying as a substitute, absorbing God's wrath. Ushers are going to be coming down now for communion. And there's the cup there that represents the blood of Christ. And then there's the little piece of bread that represents Jesus' body. Because Jesus, just before he died on the cross, he took his disciples and he said, and he introduced communion. He said, this cup and this bread, they represent me, who I am as the God-man, and the work I'm about to do for you. I'm about to die for you. I'm, I'm ready to die for your sins. And if you believe that you're a sinner and you need to be saved, and that I'm the one and the only one who can do it, then communion is for you. It's a celebration of what Jesus did. Then Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and then he rose again from the dead three days later, just as he said, just as Scripture predicted. And he rose again from the grave in a supernatural, eternal, physical, perfect resurrection body that still had the marks of his in his hands and his feet from the cross. Then he ascended and he went back to heaven, and today that's where Jesus... Where's Jesus today? I can't see him, but that's because he's in heaven. That's where he is. And he's the judge overall. He's the savior of the world. And he sends out his gospel through fellow believers and through the truth of the Bible to any sinner who would come to Jesus in faith asking forgiveness of sin, asking that Jesus would be their Lord and their Savior. And God will answer that prayer when it is prayed knowledgeably and sincerely. And then in that moment when you believe that, Boom, instantaneously God does a miracle and you are transformed on the inside. You are adopted from the family of Satan and you are put into the family of God. It's a spiritual transaction. It's amazing. And only God can do it. You can't do anything. I can't do anything to save myself or earn forgiveness of sin. It's only the work of Jesus Christ. So everything that I just said, that's the meaning of communion. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. And that's why it's open to anybody who is, who is a Christian and believes that message. If you are not a Christian and you have a desire or an interest in that, feel free maybe after the service to talk to me or maybe another Christian that you know and, and to learn more. Because what that probably means is that, believe it or not, the Spirit of God, whether you believe it or not, is working on your heart, working on your conscience, trying to woo you to himself. Don't disregard that. Don't squelch that. Pursue that. So right now, just hold on to your cup and uh, your bread if you haven't taken that yet. And I want to allow you uh, just a minute to, to meditate in your own heart, talk to God, uh, thank Him for salvation, thank Him for Jesus, and also uh, any sins that come to your mind, just lay those before Him and His promises that He will forgive you. Let's meditate together.
just before Jesus willingly went to the cross, he said to his disciples there at the Last Supper, do this in his memory. Let's eat and drink together. Right now, I'm just going to thank God for our time together. Pray you have a blessed day. Continue fervent in prayer as you walk with your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the tangible reminder of communion. So simple, yet so powerful in its meaning. Thank you for these reminders from the Word of God. We thank you that Scripture is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it does. Its truth pierces. It pierces with conviction and also provides comfort and food for our soul. We thank you for that great truth. God, help us, empower us through your Holy Spirit that we might live in a way that pleases you this day and also the rest of this week as we commit it to you. We pray all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.